toxic chemicals have contaminated the Huron River. But Representative Ryan Berman voted to cut millions from the state's cleanup fund. Berman's record is toxic. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate. The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Here is such a free on this Friday. I'm Leslie Marshall. Hello, hello, hello. Welcome or welcome back. Only true democracy in talk. Here in Southern California, no sun, no clear skies, but less smoke, which is a good thing where I am, about two and a half miles from the Bobcat fire. And uh, cooler temperatures, I'm hoping, will make it easier to put those fires out and not ignite more fires with that strong heat and uh, such uh, dry, arid conditions uh, here in the state of California, not just in the south, but in the north as well. And I certainly hope with fall and winter in the Pacific Northwest, because they're struggling in states like Oregon with wildfires as well. Just a shout out to the incredible monitors who, who really uh, risk their lives every day uh, to keep us alive and to keep us uh, living the way that we are accustomed to. Thank you. I say that personally from the bottom of my heart. Uh, we are going to have a great guest joining us later in the hour, but first we're going to kick it off on this Friday doing a little thing that most of you are aware of. And if you do the show, catch it. It's called this. Well, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell told an event today in Kentucky that a coronavirus stimulus deal is, quote, unlikely in the next three weeks. That's per Erica Werner from The Washington Post. Well, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell, I hope you're willing to, to kiss your Senate Majority Leader title goodbye uh, because, you know, voters are going to blame you. Voters are going to blame the Senate for this, not the House and the president, both of which, Senate's majority Republican, the president's Republican. Uh, that's a one. And two, uh, there are going to be people out there already. We're seeing record numbers of voters, and already they're showing those record numbers of voters to be Democrat over Republican. And if that's the case, well, Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell obviously wanted to see the Supreme Court justice more than he wanted to keep his senior leadership title. Uh, anyway, but... Uh, here, here, here's the deal. Two sources close to Senate leadership and President Trump uh, uh, say that, um, you know, uh, basically that the president is is desperate. He has zero leverage to push uh, them to support a bill that will be crafted by the majority and the Speaker Nancy Pelosi and congressional Republicans are not inclined to wrap themselves any tighter uh, to a, a sinking ship. <laughs> that would be their party and their president. Quote, you're we're never going to get a deal out of Pelosi that Republicans can support. So do you really want to divide your party within days of an election? That's what a source close to Senate leadership said about the calculations from Senate Majority Leader Mitch McConnell. So in other words, I just want to be clear. When there are those like Vice President Mike Pence who said to Senator Kamala Harris at the debate, your party plays politics, this is clearly McConnell, the president, and Republicans playing politics with your lives and putting politics over your money that you're entitled to as taxpayers in a time of need and a pandemic from COVID-19 certainly is that. Uh, by the way, uh, this is what uh, they went on to say, quote, 
this the, this entire exercise from Pelosi is basically trying to jam up the Senate in the midst of a Supreme Court nomination. This is a you know McConnell's people. They know that from a procedural standpoint, McConnell can drive this train to conclusion. So what they're trying to do is throw as many roadblocks in the way as possible. Sound familiar? Didn't he say that was his goal when Obama was president? And the best way to do that is to get the president focused on some other issue. Uh, Pelosi's out there doing 25th Amendment stuff today. Does this sound like a lady who wants a deal? There's no way McConnell takes his eye off the ball. Republicans are intently focused on the Supreme Court. Um, well, um, well, Republicans care about the Supreme Court more than they care about the American people. Senate Republicans, including McConnell, by the way, have largely been left out of the recent negotiating process between congressional Democrats and the White House. So even if Pelosi and Treasury Secretary, the Treasury Secretary reach a deal, strike a deal, and, and that's a big if, right, at this point, there is little chance the Senate GOP would get on board with it. And complicating matters further, Senate Republicans remain far apart on what they want as a governing body. They also view the president and the Treasury secretary as far more willing to give in to Pelosi than what they are willing to give her, what they're comfortable with, both with numbers and with policy. So the bottom line here is Mitch McConnell doesn't want to do anything to interrupt the only only visible Republican win before the election in his chamber. Only Republican win will be confirmation of Amy Coney Barrett. I hope he likes it enough to lose his leadership because I think he will no longer be Senate Majority Leader, I pray, after uh, November in our uh, general election coming up weeks away. Let's rip another. More than 25.5 million people, let's say that again, more than 25.5 million people were collecting unemployment benefits as of mid-September. Nearly 1.3 million people filed first-time jobless claims last week. And more than 800,000 for traditional unemployment, 464,000 for the Pandemic Unemployment Assistance Program. That number excluded any new claims from the largest state in the country, the state I'm sitting in right here in California. They paused its program to implement fraud prevention technology, combed through a backlog of claims that had reached nearly 600,000 and was growing by 10,000 a day. California, by the way, isn't the only place where issues with unemployment claims are rising. The persistently high number of claims drive an uneasy contrast with a continued decline in the unemployment rate and improving numbers on the job opening and labor turnover survey. To the point that University of Oregon economist Tim Dwy says, quote, we should be more skeptical about the initial claims data. In other words, something doesn't add up, literally. The claims data, he says, lets you view the current environment as a repeat of the last recovery. He wrote about this in his, in his blog for FedWatch blog. Uh, if the claims data is deeply corrupted, the conventional wisdom is it's just plain wrong. He says, I keep saying the same thing. This isn't the 20, 207 to 200, uh, 2007 to 2009 recession or the 2009 to 2020 recovery. It's something entirely different. Let's rip another. A quarter of Americans say they know someone who has gone into work while feeling unwell. That's according to a survey provided exclusively what? to access by the paid for all by the paid leave for all campaign. Now, why does this matter? Well, we will not be able to get the pandemic under control unless people can stay home when they're sick. Clearly, many Americans are not able to do that, especially people of color, without risking their job or their paycheck. In March, a quarter of private sector workers in the United States didn't have a single day of paid sick leave, and that's according to an analysis of recent Bureau of Labor Statistics. And that data was analyzed by the National Partnership for Women and Families. 
but paid sick leave varies drastically by income. 69% of the lowest income workers had no paid sick days compared to 6% of the highest income workers. And part-time workers, well, they're far less likely to have paid sick leave than full-time workers. The bottom line here is the same groups that struggle to stay from home from work, low-income Americans, people of color, those are the same groups that have been hit hardest by this pandemic, by COVID-19. And that is not a coincidence. Let's rip another. Even as President Donald Trump made clear he wanted to return to the campaign trail as soon as this weekend, the White House today declined to provide basic information about his condition and how it would determine he was no longer contagious from his bout with COVID-19. During a friendly interview last night with a buddy of his, somebody who's a colleague of mine at Fox News, Sean Hannity, Trump ignored questions about whether he had been tested recently or had tested negative for COVID-19. He said, quote, Well, what we're doing is probably the test will be tomorrow, the actual test, because there's no reason to test all the time. Wrong. My husband's an orthopedic surgeon, and he had a patient he operated on. And the day after he operated on the patient, the patient had tested positive for COVID-19. My husband was tested every single day for about a 10 or 14 day period. And he was negative for that period of time. Interestingly enough, Not everybody who was in the room with the patient and my husband tested negative. Some of those people tested positive, and it wasn't necessarily the first test. For one, it was. They immediately were quarantined. But for other people, test results didn't come back positive after testing negative for seven, eight, nine, or even 10 days uh, into testing. So I know from personal experience in my own family, the president is completely wrong on that. He said they found very little infection or virus, if any. By the way, That could be true. My husband said the patient had tested positive, was not symptomatic, and had very little uh, volume of the virus in the system. And I guess certain tests can uh, detect um, the volume of the virus within your system. Um, uh, We need to break. Is that what we need to do, Marky Mark? Um, We'll take a break. We'll come back with more Ripped, and I'll finish up about uh, the White House and the president being evasive on those health questions regarding his COVID-19 positive diagnosis. We'll be back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Don't go away. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com. And we're back. I'm Leslie Marshall. Welcome or welcome back. We were talking about Donald Trump, the president on Sean Hannity on Fox News last night, where I am a contributor. Sean, uh, I've known for many years. Uh, We've been friends for many years, believe it or not, but we don't agree politically at all. Uh, And uh, on uh, on TV last night, uh, the president said, and I reiterate from earlier, well, what we're dreaming is probably the test will be tomorrow, the actual test, because there's no reason to test all the time. I told you why I disagree with that. But they found very little infection of virus, if any. I don't know if they found any. I didn't go into it greatly with the doctors. The the test is very clear. You're positive or you're negative. Uh, Can there be false uh, negatives or false positives? Uh, Like with any test, yes, nothing's 100% sure. The president said during that same interview that he hoped to get back out on the campaign trail as soon as Saturday or Sunday, which I posted online, I believe on Twitter, is highly irresponsible. If you have covid You need to be in quarantine and you need to continue to be in quarantine, at least until you're negative so that you are not 
potentially affecting other individuals. Even if you wear a mask and social distance, it's not 100% guarantee that you couldn't spread something uh, to someone else uh, because it is airborne and uh, the mask doesn't, as you know, uh, it, it's not 100% effective. Um, if it were, maybe not so many people would be fighting over whether or not they should wear it. He also floated uh, Florida and Pennsylvania as possible locales for rallies. By the way, right now, I think it's 28 states have upticks in the virus. Florida is one of those. This morning, White House Press Secretary Kayleigh McEnany indicated the president might not actually travel as soon as Saturday. That would be more responsible. She said during an interview on Fox also, logistically, whether tomorrow is possible, it would be tough. It would be a decision for the campaign. Now, the president's physician, Dr. Sean Conley, who I must advise you, is a member of the Navy. And therefore, the president is not only his patient, but his commander in chief. I want to be clear about that. And remember, a doctor is bound to privacy laws, HIPAA privacy laws, um, even though he's the president. So it is possible the doctor's not telling us everything. And by the way, that would be the right thing to do for the privacy of Donald Trump as his patient and in following orders from his commander in chief. But this is what he said in a memorandum released um, by the White House yesterday, that he anticipated the president could make, quote, a safe return to public engagements as soon as Saturday, he said would mark day 10 since the president was diagnosed with coronavirus. And I don't know, he's only one guy, but I say, unless the guy is completely out of the woods and negative, you're putting other people that work with him at risk. By the way, one of the security officials is, um, is they, they are saying in, in the ICU and not doing well at all, very, very poorly, who was among those people uh, in the Rose Garden and who the president and others came in contact with, so he contracted it somewhere. Speaking of, the president blamed it on Gold Star families. How, how disgusting. Even if you thought that, you shouldn't say it, right? He did not say how the White House would determine the president was no longer contagious. And when McEnany was asked, she deferred to the doctors. But the doctors won't say. Um, the doctors need to be clear. You know, when are you or I no longer contagious? When we have been quarantined for at least 14 days and have more than one test to be negative. That's what they're doing with patients of my husband's or, or co-workers of my husband's at the hospital or even at his practice. Last night, the president paused his interview with Hannity twice to clear his throat, apparently coughing. That is a potential symptom of coronavirus. This afternoon, he dismissed any concerns. He says, quote, there's always that lingering for a couple of days. That's what he told Rush Limbaugh, another buddy of his, during a radio interview billed as a radio rally. He said it's called the lingering thing. Uh, by the way, Herman Cain was diagnosed, felt great, turned the corner, and died the next day. Now, I'm not saying that'll happen to the president. I'm simply saying this is one of the reasons doctors can't always answer the questions with COVID-19. It's a very different and peculiar virus, and they haven't figured it out fully. Now, the president's doctors have not held a news conference since Monday. That's when the president was still hospitalized at Walter Reed National Military Medical Center in Bethesda, Maryland. And the daily memorandums from Conley, the White House has released since then, have been very sparse on details. The White House this morning declined to comment if the president's doctors would provide an update today in any capacity. It also declined to say if the president was still scheduled to receive a COVID-19 test today. He alluded to it last night. If so, whether the White House would make those results public. And they should. He's He is our commander in chief. Whether you're voting for him or not, he's supposed to represent all of us, we the people. Now, Dr. Conley and various White House officials have for the past week also refused to provide a major detail key to the public's understanding of one the president first contracted the virus, 
and when he became contagious. And by the way, that's irresponsible to everyone around him. When exactly he last tested negative prior to receiving his first positive test, they haven't answered either. And they said he first tested positive on Thursday. That information could help determine when he exposed to the virus and the severity of his illness and answer the question of whether he was potentially contagious Tuesday night, because that's when he had the presidential debate with Democratic presidential nominee Joe Biden. Let's rip another. Speaking of doctors, Dr. Anthony Fauci says the Trump White House COVID strategy of testing but no masks does not work. And that's evidenced by super spreader, the event for Amy Coney Barrett. Take a listen. The recommendation would be everybody should wear a mask, literally, universally. And that's been your recommendation for at least the last six months. So let me ask you at this. At least the last six months. That's right. Right. Um, at the White House, we have not seen the president's aides until most recently wearing masks. There have been tests conducted among the president's senior staff, and we're told anyone who is in close proximity to the president. What do we learn about the efficacy of that strategy in terms of preventing the spread of coronavirus? Well, I think the, the, the data speak for themselves. We had a super spreader event in the White House, and it was in a situation where people were crowded together and were not wearing masks. So the data speak for themselves. That's Dr. Anthony Fauci. Let's rip another. House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Democrat of California, introduced legislation today that would create a bipartisan commission to determine a sitting president's ability to carry out the duties of the office. At a press conference unveiling the legislation with its original author, Representative Jamie Raskin, a Democrat from Maryland, Pelosi said the measure is not intended specifically for President Donald Trump, but she suggested that he was the uh, motivating factor behind it. She said, quote, this is not about President Trump. He will face the judgment of the voters, but he shows the need for us to create a process for future presidents. This legislation applies to future presidents, but we are reminded of the necessity of action by the health of our current president. The idea for the legislation stems from the 25th Amendment, and that provides procedures for transferring power to the vice president in case of the president's death, incapacitation, removal, or resignation. It was ratified and approved in the wake of the assassination of President John F. Kennedy, and one of its sections provides the vice president and majority of either the cabinet or such other body as Congress may by law provide with a mechanism to transfer power from the president. The commission would consist of 16 members chosen both by Democrats and Republicans who are medical experts or former high-ranking executive branch officials, such as former members of the president's cabinet. The 17th member, the chair, would be selected by the rest of those commission's members. And under the legislation, Congress could pass a concurrent resolution requiring the commission to conduct a medical exam of the president to, deserve, to determine his or her capacity to continue to do the job. Let me just say this in closing. When the squad talks about all the things they want to put forth and like three out of four Joe Biden doesn't agree with and we're weeks away from election, that's stupid to unite the party. When you talk about removing the president and you want undecided or swing voters or Republicans unhappy with Trump to trust you that it's not just about Trump, not good timing, in my opinion, to do this now. And I know some of my fellow Democrats may say, well, we're not going to remove Donald Trump based on the 25th Amendment. We, the people, will remove Donald Trump based on our vote. And that's why your vote is essential, not these pieces of legislation. I'm Leslie Marshall, back in a moment. If you miss Leslie on TV this week, catch up at LeslieMarshallShow.com.
welcome, welcome back only to Democracy and Talk. And I want to say welcome back to uh, this individual because I think she was on our show a long time ago. Um, but if not, I am more than glad to have her on, whether it's the first time. But like I said, my memory's telling me she was on before. Jessica Levinson, who's a professor at Loyola Law School and founding director of Loyola's Public Service Institute. She's also a host of the Passing Judgment podcast, which I was lucky enough to be on last week. It was a lot of fun. It's very interesting, and you'll have to check it out. Her Twitter handle, follow her there, is at Levinson Jessica, L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N-J-E-S-S-I-C-A. And the handle for her podcast is at Pass Judgment Pod. Do check it out and do follow uh, Twitter and that podcast. It's very interesting. She's a great host, and it's good to have reverse seats today where I'm hosting and she's the guest as she was hosting and I was the guest on Passing Judgment, uh, the Passing Judgment podcast. Uh, Jessica, thank you for joining us and welcome. Or welcome uh, thank, Thanks so much for having me. You're right. I think it is a return visit. And I just want to say you are so phenomenal on the podcast. You made it easy. And um, I basically, you know, I could have been a, a monkey just kind of throwing up post-it notes and you, it would have been a great show. So thank you oh, so much. Really? We talk, Could we, we do oh, that next time? <laughs> the monkey. <laughs> well, because you definitely have an upper hand on me uh, when it comes to the law and to legal knowledge, um, I wanted to ask you uh, some questions uh, surrounding that. Um Right now, we have approximately 300 lawsuits that were filed this year over voting rules, and they've been settled. Uh, there are some key ones that remain unresolved. Court decisions could still reshape how voting is conducted in uh, some crucial states. Um, first of all, is is that a really high number? And is that, um, you know, is, is that not the norm uh, in an election year? And especially regarding this topic, this issue of uh, rules of voting or, you know, voters' rights. Yeah, it's it's a really, really high number. So, you know, listeners, viewers, if it sounds like a high number, you're not imagining it. And that's for a couple of reasons. And some of them are COVID-19 related. And that's because we have had basically every state in the nation, except for five that already run all of their elections vote by mail, We've had states have to ramp up infrastructure for vote by mail really quickly in the middle of a pandemic. And that leads to all sorts of legal questions about who automatically gets a ballot, if anybody, who automatically gets a application for a ballot, if anybody, you know, what is an excuse for a ballot? Once you want to return that ballot, do you return it with a drop box? How many drop boxes does the jurisdiction need? Do you return it by mail? Do you need a witness or a notary to see that you sign that um, that vote by mail ballot? And so it's partly COVID and having to ramp up vote by mail. It's partly this election because, again, we have a very um, litigious situation, I would say, and it may be close in the electoral college. And, you know, it, it's partly that we just see more election related suits. But certainly, I think the takeaway for me is that we spend a lot of time talking about, and it's important, you know, what happened in the debates or who's the running mate or how did they answer this question. But the truth is that elections really can be won and lost based on these maybe less sexy, but really, really important issues like. How many drop boxes do you have in a state to return your ballots? It doesn't sound as interesting as, you know, 
did President Trump fumble a answer on climate change or did he really just say that? But it arguably has much more consequence. When you talk about drop boxes, I saw something and, you know, visuals for me, I love visual aids and um, they, they showed the state of Texas and they broke it down. And what blew my mind, it was in a very rural area with seriously less than 200 people. They have one drop box. I don't remember the name of that county. But then the county that Houston, Texas is in, which I lived in back in the day, um, you know, you know, one, one of or it was when I was there, the top 10 cities in the United States or around 10th largest city in the United States. They have one drop box yeah. uh, for that county. And I'm wondering the legislation um, it, certainly that's been passed has been, I mean, not legislation, the, 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 uh, ex- the lawsuits that have been won are lost, uh, that are done, but there are still lawsuits pending in the courts. Could the outcome of some of these lawsuits still reshape how voting is conducted in some states? Are those states crucial this close to an election? Uh, yes, yes, and yes. And this is why you may have seen on my uh, Twitter profile, you'll see a lot of, well, it's 4 a.m., but let's talk about So what you talked about in terms of that visual of, you know, here's a really small county, one drop box. Here's a county that's maybe one of the most populous in the nation. Here's one drop box. It's an iteration of the problem that we tried to solve with one person, one vote. I mean, that's how we used to elect representatives. I know that this isn't exactly the question, but if you have one representative per county, you know, in that rural area, you have your one state lawmaker, and maybe it's a you know one per twelve hundred ratio in terms of one representative for twelve hundred people, and then you could have another representative who has two million constituents, and it's the same problem with respect to drop boxes. Now, you know, could this litigation make a difference? So yes and no. I mean, there's a reason that people are up at this point all night advocating for their belief because they know that this is the stuff that can turn a competitive election. There's not a lot of litigation in California because we're not competitive, not a lot of litigation in Alabama for the same reason. But where you see the most litigation, think about Ohio, Wisconsin, uh, Michigan. These are places where we know it's in play. Um, you know, in terms of though the outcome, I would say sometime, yes, you could still absolutely, there's time for a political win or loss, depending on your side. But remember that just the, the fact that the restrictions are in place now is already having an effect. It's already harder for some people to vote. Some people are already being chilled from taking part in the process. So you can change things. But when you do things like only put one drop box, when you say don't trust the vote by mail system, when in the first instance you say you need a notary, even if those things are changed, there's a bunch of people who aren't going to loop back and try and exercise their right to vote. And speaking uh, to that point, um, and and especially when you talk about one person, one vote, this all leads to a lot of confusion. Um, and there are people out there who are unsure, unsure of where they go, what to do, how to vote, or that their vote will count. Um, can you speak to that? Because honestly, even before COVID and all of this, there are people that don't vote because they feel their vote or fear their vote doesn't count. This just makes it worse, doesn't it? And adds to the confusion and, and, the, and the lack of confidence in that. 
Oh, absolutely. I mean, when you're talking about what we should be worried about in America, it's not voter fraud. And it's not voter fraud in person, and it's not voter fraud in the vote-by-mail situation. It's voter suppression. It's making rules that are unnecessarily burdensome, unnecessarily confusing. And so people just decide either I can't trust the process or I don't understand the process and I just want to opt out. Now, like part of this, and not nearly all of it, not a majority of it, but part of this is our system. So in our country, the Constitution says that states determine the time, place, and manner of elections. And that's why we have this horrible patchwork throughout the country. That's why I can't tell you what the rules are for ballot drop boxes um, when it comes to nationwide. I can only tell you this state, this state, because all of these rules vary by state. And so a part of the messiness is just a result of the fact that we have elections that are run state by state, in some cases, county by county. But Leslie, you're exactly right. A lot of people are confused. I would tell people, I know you have a, a break, but I would tell people, go to their county registrar, go to their secretary of state website, figure out how and where they can vote. That's very well said. I'm going to go a little early to break. Can I do that, Marky Mac? Is that okay? Um, we're, we're going to, uh, oh, no, it's a hard break. I can't. Um, I want you to be thinking about this question to answer when we come back. Um, because, you know, we talk about confusion and um, we talk about courts. And the United States Supreme Court ordered that voters in South Carolina need a witness signature on their absentee ballots. Now, Republicans say they need that requirement because it discourages voter fraud. Democrats say it's unnecessary, it's burdensome. burdensome. Um, I say whatever happened to a secret ballot, <laughs> it's your privacy when voting. But I wanna talk about that um, when we come back, because that's one example of a state, in my opinion, uh, that's certainly making it more difficult for maybe somebody who is elderly and lives alone um, you know, it, it just seems to be putting yet another obstacle in the way of a voter. And, and it just blows my mind that, by the way, Republicans should want people to vote because maybe they'll have high numbers as well. You can you can you know, you can win or you can win or lose with this strategy. So we take a break. When we come back. I'd love for you to speak to the uh, South Carolina uh, order from the Supreme Court. I was quite surprised. Uh, by that ruling that you need a witness signature on your absentee ballot there. I'm Leslie Marshall, back after this. Exactly. That's exactly the problem. I love your couch. It's nice and long. Follow Leslie on Twitter. Just go to www.twitter.com slash Leslie Marshall, and we'll be sure to share your tweets. back with Jessica Levinson, my guest professor at Loyola Law School, founding director of Loyola's Public Service Institute and host of the Passing Judgment podcast, which I was lucky to be a part of. It was great fun. She's a great host. Please follow her on Twitter at Levinson Jessica, L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N, Jessica, J-E-S-S-I-C-A. And the handle for her podcast is at Pod. Jessica, thank you for holding. Welcome back. Uh, before the break, I was asking you um, about a specific case in this with regard to voting uh, in the uh, state of South Carolina, where the U.S. Supreme Court ordered that voters in that state needed a witness signature on their absentee ballots. 
Um, and this is just one case of where voters are getting this whiplash between what they had, what they're doing. Because in this case, if you already voted, you're kind of grandfathered in and exempted. Uh, can you speak to us about South Carolina and that ruling by the uh, by the high court? Yeah. So, and the Supreme Court is gonna has a very active docket uh, today. Uh, over the weekend, over the next few days, dealing with these, as we said, over 300 election-related lawsuits. So in South Carolina, you know, the question really is, do you, in a time of COVID, or frankly, in any time, need to have this witness signature requirement? Because it, so it's not somebody saying, oh, how did you vote? It's the person making sure that you are putting your ballot in the envelope that when you sign, it's really your ballot. Nobody said, now be sure to vote yes on Prop 25, and nobody filled it in for you. So the idea is that it's there to prevent fraud, but we know from every legitimate study that that is not something that we should be worried about. Are, is there anecdotal evidence of some rare instances of voter fraud? Absolutely. In those very, very rare circumstances, is it more likely to happen in the vote-by-mail situation? Yes, but Leslie, it's what we talked about before. What we should be worried about is people who are suppressed, who can't find that witness because either they live alone or, again, they're scared to have someone close to them because if there's one thing that we've heard, it's don't have close contact with someone right now. Protect yourself. And so the idea is, do these signature requirements, these witness requirements, excuse me, make any sense, period, but do they make any sense when it comes to a pandemic? And again, a reminder that most states, many states don't have these requirements. California doesn't have that requirement. You can basically look, red states have more stringent requirements Blue states, they do the opposite. They say same-day voter registration or automatic voter registration. You don't have a requirement of a witness signature in most situations. Now, you asked me about the Supreme Court. We're going to see, I think, increasingly that the Supreme Court will not be the ones to, from my perspective, save us. And that's because there's um, an old kind of doctrine or principle that says the Supreme Court don't make decisions that change the status quo right before the election, that that's going to cause more confusion. Mm -hmm. And we're going to see the Supreme Court, I think, use that as an opportunity to say, not it. We just don't want to be involved. You know, Purcell principle, we're out. And um, I, I just think we've seen since the primary elections that were held during the beginning of the pandemic, we cannot rely on the courts to save us. Uh, no, I agree with you. In Pennsylvania, they're doing something which I, I can see both sides of clearly. Um, it would allow absentee ballots uh, to be counted if they're received up to three days after Election Day. And, and the reason for that is there's a concern about mail being delayed because there's a record number of people voting and a record number voting by mail. And as we know, there have been uh, disadvantages uh, to the U.S. Postal Service's ability, uh, to say the least, to be able to do uh, that that kind of volume. They say they can handle it, but you know, if you, if you have less employees or they can't work overtime, which supposedly is not going to be the case. Uh, but in Pennsylvania, um, they've asked uh, the Supreme Court to block the decision uh, that the Pennsylvania Supreme Court said yes, that you know your your votes count. Now, see there. If you're living in Pennsylvania, you're going to think, well, if I don't get my butt to the post office or to the a drop box by this time, my vote's not going to count. Oh, I missed it. Why bother voting? 
On the other side, as I can see, some people would be concerned with the delay because Pennsylvania is a swing state. And technically, Pennsylvania, it could come down to Pennsylvania, and then we wouldn't know who the next president is for at least three days. Um, you know, that, that, that could come as well. I want people's vote to count. Oh, but at the same time, I want to go to bed that <laughs> at night. I think many Americans do, knowing the outcome. Uh, so if you could speak to Pennsylvania. First of all, welcome to 2020 and the uh, leaf blower in the background. I'm so sorry about that. Of course, always when you go live, right? Never in the other spaces. It was very subtle. I hardly noticed. Well, I'm glad that I called attention to it then. <laughs> um, now, you know, with respect to these requirements of when does the ballot have to come, a couple of things. And the first thing I would say is, please, everyone, if you get your ballot on time, don't wait to see if you're going to be in that zone where you're too late. Go ahead and fill in your ballot as early as possible. Make your decisions earlier than you normally, normally would. That's the way where these you're not living and dying on these court decisions. So that's the way that you can say, I'm going to make sure my vote counts or go to a drop box. You might have to wait in line but find mitigating ways so that you don't have to wait and say, you know, I'm the person where my vote's not gonna count because I wait, waited to the last minute. You know, the, the other thing is with respect to these rules is that um, the other kind of practical takeaway, I do wanna tell people, I really do not expect to know the winner on the night of November 3rd. And I really want people to be thinking about and expecting something called the red mirage because the people who vote in person or the people who vote earlier by mail, we know statistically are more likely to be Republicans. So it could look very good for President Trump or at least better than it otherwise would the night of the election. As time goes on, as more ballots are counted, some states don't even let you count vote by mail ballots until the day of the election. I think there will be a blue shift. President Trump will say that's fraud. It's not fraud. It's county registers doing their job of carefully counting. Now, fortunately, fortunately, I don't know if you saw today, uh, so far the early voting has been in Democrats' favor. So apparently, right as of now, uh, so it would have been counted, Biden is ahead, and they're not saying by what, obviously, because you know they're not going to calculate at this point. But they're just saying it's favoring. And we are seeing record numbers of voters. We just don't know which party those record numbers of voters are coming out uh, from and for. You know, right. But, but I, I, I do agree with you that if that happens, that's I mean, he. I, I'm sorry. I just think the president's going to spin it either way. You oh, know, I, if, if Joe Biden's the winner that night, he's going to say then he's going to turn and say, give Pennsylvania the three days, give Wisconsin their six days. Vote of fraud. Let's drag this out in the courts. I'm fully expecting that. Um, as, as a matter of fact, I'm, I'm surprised if he, I wouldn't be surprised if he wins, he argues it, because he, he's, he, has, he has a problem with, you know, it's so interesting because historically, um, to your point, people that vote early and historically people who vote by mail are Republican. So it's really odd when you have the president and Republican and other Republicans arguing over, um, you know, mail-in votes, uh, you know, absentee votes, when military votes absentee, uh, you know, and, and mail, you know, via mail and uh, senior citizens who have historically been uh, for Donald Trump, although Joe Biden's taken some of that number, so say the polls. Um, so it's 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 very interesting. It's mind boggling. But 
Yeah, I mean, it's almost like his speech is setting up the system for failure or laying the groundwork for what he's saying and, you know, what's going to come, uh, you know, to us uh, in the future. There are so many things going on in Alabama, uh, you know, other states as, as well. Uh, I want to um, uh, I want to talk about um, those uh, ballot drop off sites that I mentioned before in Texas, um, because lawyers for voters and voting rights groups asked a federal judge to block Governor Greg, Greg Abbott, the Texas governor's recent order limiting counties to one location where voters can handle mail-in ballots. Uh, and he waited too long to issue his order on October 1st, they argued. Um, the list goes on. I don't know what that is. <laughs> But, but um, so so talk to talk to us about this. I mean, this is to me, it's almost like I'm sorry. To me, it's almost like you see in the headlines that Joe Biden and Donald Trump are tied in Texas today. Joe Biden is up by one percentage point, and all of a sudden, the governor says, "I." The governor says, "I'm going to you know limit how many drop-off sites there are." Um, so. I mean, bottom line, can they do this? I mean, is that legal for governors to do? Just change the rules at the last minute? This is terrible for voters. It suppresses voters. It's confusing for voters. And it's clearly politically motivated. Yeah. Um, so I think that the answer is, unfortunately, it depends on the state law as to whether or not the governor has the discretion to do that. It depends on whether or not there's a suit under the federal law, the Voting Rights Act. And it depends on whether a judge is going to say it rises to the standard, that it reduces your ability to cast a meaningful ballot, if there's any legitimate reason for it. Frankly, I think what you talked about before, this matchup here between Democrats saying, basically, let's count more votes, and Republicans saying, let's try and create more restrictions, is that this is the best way we know that Democrats think that they're going to win by higher voter turnout. And Republicans think that they're going to win with lower voter turnout. We've seen the president of the United States say that explicitly. We've seen Senator Mitch McConnell essentially say that, which is it's going to be really hard for us to win nationally with high voter turnout. They've said that that's really about uh, voter fraud. But the truth is, I think if you look at the demographics, and that's kind of the takeaway from all of these cases, if you look at the demographics, Democrats are going to do better the more people who show up. And that's why there's so much litigation about, again, these issues of when can your ballot count? How long do you have to turn it in? Do you need to have a witness there? How many drop boxes you have? All of these things in a, in a razor thin state, that could make the difference in a close electoral college uh, election. I loved having you here today. We'll have to have you back, and we will. Uh, once again, Jessica Levinson is professor at Loyola Law School. She's founding director of Loyola's Public Service Institute, and she's host of the Passing Judgment podcast. It's awesome. She's the host. I had a lot of fun. Uh, I like those questions you ask. She asks questions of uh, her listeners that are completely nothing to do with politics or news um, or, uh, or the law. Her Twitter handle is at Levinson Jessica. That's at L-E-V-I-N-S-O-N-J-E-S-S-I-C-A. The handle for her podcast is at Pass Judgment Pod, P-A-S-S-J-U-D-G-E-M-E-N-T Pod. Uh, and uh, more than a pleasure to have you with us uh, today, like I said, and I hope that you'll come back again soon. Absolutely. Anytime. Thank you for the great questions and the fun conversation. 
Oh, absolutely. It could go on and on and on. There's so many things going on in so many states. Wisconsin wants six days after. Um, I, I won't be able to sleep. <laughs> it's worth it. I'll get you some uh, yerba mate and some uh, matcha. It's worth it for us to stay up to make sure everybody's vote counts. Absolutely. Every vote must count. This is what the Huron River sounds like. What you can't hear are toxic chemicals like PFAS that have contaminated the water. Toxic PFAS are linked to cancer and brain damage in children. But State Representative Ryan Berman cut more than $21 million from the state's contaminated site cleanup fund. Ryan Berman's record is toxic. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate. This is what the Huron River sounds like. What you can't hear are toxic chemicals like PFAS that have contaminated the water. Toxic PFAS are linked to cancer and brain damage in children. But State Representative Ryan Berman cut more than $21 million from the state's contaminated site cleanup fund. Ryan Berman's record is toxic. Paid for with regulated funds by Michigan Leadership Committee PAC, not authorized by any candidate.